Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. As the sun rises over the state prison in Los Angeles County, a 79-year-old man, hair white and body confined to a wheelchair, is rolled into an interview room. The old man is weak, his joints creak, atrophied muscles sag. Even his breathing as he sits is ragged. Waiting in the interview room is Texas Ranger James Holland. Handsome, tall, and broad-shouldered, he greets the elderly inmate and they sit down to eat breakfast. Their conversation is polite, friendly even. This has been their daily ritual for years. Once they're finished with breakfast, Holland and the old man get down to business. A guard brings a sketch pad and a set of crayons. Though the old man's hands are gnarled with age, he can still wield a crayon with some skill. Holland asks questions to jog the old man's memory. Where was he in 1986? Who did he meet in Cleveland? What did she look like? What color was her hair? What was the shape of her jaw? Her nose, was it long or short? Before long, a face appears on the page. A woman, long dead. Her killer? The very man drawing her portrait, a man who may never recall her name, but will forever remember her face. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. This is Serial Killers, a ParCast original. Every episode, we dive into the minds and madness of serial killers. Today, we're telling the story of Samuel Little, believed to be the most prolific serial killer in American history. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Serial Killers for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Serial Killers in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Samuel Little allegedly murdered 93 women between 1970 and 2005. Though he can't remember all of their names, he has recalled dozens of their faces through portraits drawn in prison. Today, we're going to cover Little's early years. We'll follow his insidious progression from petty criminal to sexual predator, and finally, to serial killer. Next week, we'll trace Little's bloody trail across the United States and examine how James Holland and law enforcement from around the country pieced together a portrait of the killer himself. Samuel Little was born in the small Georgia town of Reynolds, a farming community located roughly 100 miles south of Atlanta. Little claimed his mother was a sex worker. Specific details around his birth are unclear, but investigators have speculated that Little may have been born in jail in 1940, after one of his mother's arrests. 
If Little was indeed born in jail, he likely wouldn't have spent much time with his mother in his first fragile days. Either way, the young Mrs. Little, who reports say was only a teen when she gave birth to Samuel, was not prepared to raise a son. She abandoned him shortly after his birth. Vanessa is going to take over in the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Criminologist Scott Bonn identified parental rejection, especially by mothers, as a common factor in the background of serial killers. Bonn explained that this abandonment can create a deep-seated fear or hatred of rejection. Therefore, they may seek to hurt or eliminate those who represent that anxiety. Many of Little's victims were, like his mother, sex workers. In killing them, he may have been trying to enact retribution against a symbol of his neglectful mother. As an infant, Little was sent to Lorraine, Ohio, to live with his maternal grandmother. Lorraine was a steel town, not far from Cleveland, situated on the shores of Lake Erie. Little moved to Lorraine during a time when many black Americans were moving northward from the southern Jim Crow states. More than six million people moved during the Great Migration. They settled mostly in the industrial centers of the Northeast and Midwest between 1916 and 1970. But life in the North was not always better for black migrants. Many thought moving out of the Jim Crow South would mean escape from state-sanctioned discrimination. But in Ohio and many other northern cities, informal racism persisted. When black Americans arrived in industrial towns like Lorraine, middle-class whites fled for the suburbs, taking businesses and jobs with them. So-called white flight drained northern cities of once thriving tax bases. The results were crumbling infrastructure, underfunded schools, and extreme job shortages that have plagued some neighborhoods and communities of color to this day. And it was in this shifting landscape that Little was raised. We don't know much about his home life with his grandmother, but we do know that his education was limited. He never attended high school, and his time at the local junior high was marked by disciplinary problems and low academic achievement. At age 16, Little's delinquent behavior produced its first real consequence. He was caught stealing a bicycle and sent to the Boys Industrial School in Lancaster, Ohio, formerly called the State Reform Farm. Jillian Lauren, the only journalist to have interviewed Little behind bars, described his time in Lancaster as brutal. But Little is known about the disciplinary practices of the specific institution at that time. According to historical records, Little would have been given free reign of the school's grounds. He would have lived in a cottage with several other boys, not in a cell. And he would have received vocational training in blacksmithing, tailoring, carpentry, stenography, and a number of other trades. Still, abuse was common at state-run custodial institutions at the time, and continues to this day. A 2015 study conducted by the Annie E. Casey Foundation discovered systemic maltreatment in the juvenile correctional systems of 29 states. In addition, nearly 10% of youth incarcerated in state-operated or state-funded facilities reported being victimized sexually during their stay. 
However, we should note that it's unclear what, if any, abuse Little himself suffered while at Lancaster. Even with modern prison reform, the recidivism rates of juvenile offenders in the United States are universally poor. This is largely attributed to a combination of excessive punitiveness and sometimes abuse. Young people incarcerated at an early age are consequently more likely to commit crimes as adults. As was the case with Little. At some point after he was released from Lancaster, Little robbed a furniture store. He was convicted and sentenced to three years in prison. While incarcerated, Little picked up boxing and he developed a powerful physique. He also started drawing in his free time. And his choice of subject previewed his future murderous obsession. Whether he had access to pencils or paint, he almost exclusively drew women. Upon his release from prison in 1964, Little, now in his mid-twenties, reunited with his mother. By that point, she was living in South Florida. It was the first time she made room in her home for her son. Little has never spoken much on the record about his adult relationship with his mother, but we can assume he enjoyed at least a little comfort in her house. He lived there on and off for almost 20 years. Little held a number of odd jobs in Florida, including one as a garbage collector for the Miami-Dade County Department of Sanitation, and another as a groundskeeper at a local cemetery. But he never kept a job for long. Although his mother's home in Florida was a home base for nearly two decades, he was an itinerant. He spent years traversing the United States, committing crimes left and right. By 1975, he'd been arrested 26 times in 11 different states. His charges included shoplifting, armed robbery, solicitation of sex workers, driving under the influence, aggravated assault on an officer of the law, and rape. But for whatever reason, he wasn't sent back to prison for these various offenses. His nomadic lifestyle may have prevented law enforcement from realizing that Little was a career criminal. It wasn't until 1976 that he faced true consequences for his actions. That September, 36-year-old Little was arrested in Missouri for the rape, assault, and burglary of Pamela K. Smith. She was known in the area as a drug addict and occasional sex worker. Little came across Smith in his car as she walked alone down a deserted street. He offered her a ride. Once Smith climbed into the passenger seat, Little punched her savagely in the side of the face. He forced her into the back seat, stripped off her clothes, and bound her hands with an electrical cord. Miraculously, Smith managed to kick the car door open and escape into the night. She ran naked, her hands behind her back, until she found a house. Weeping on the stranger's doorstep, she begged them to help her. When the police arrived, Smith accused Little of beating her, strangling her, and raping her. But when officers located Little, sitting in his car not far from where Smith found help, he denied the rape accusation. He said, I only beat her. Ultimately, Little was convicted of a lesser charge, attempt to ravish, and only served three months in prison. This may have been related to Smith's perceived reliability as a witness. She had a history of drug-related offenses. 
Perhaps unwilling to believe her version of the assault, the prosecution was less than zealous with its sentencing recommendation for Little. After serving his time in Missouri, Little went back to his nomadic ways. There aren't many known details about his next few years, but by September of 1982, he was back in Florida and on the hunt for a new victim. Irene Montz was a 44-year-old hotel laundry worker. She was sitting on the hood of her car on a side street in Gainesville one night when 42-year-old Sam Little pulled up alongside her. He got out of his car and walked over to Montz. He asked her if she would like to have a drink with him. She politely declined. Then Little turned and pointed down the street to a nearby bar. He asked, what's going on down there? Montz told him it was Willie May Hodge's beer tavern. She said he should check it out. Little obliged and headed over. Once inside, he tried to talk to several women, asking if they'd like to drink with him or dance with him. But they all turned him down. Just when he thought he was out of chances for the night, Little spotted a tall woman swaying alone on the dance floor. Patricia Ann Mount was a regular at Willie Mays, and she was notorious. The 26-year-old was known to drink heavily, cuss, and start fights she couldn't win. The very night before, she'd been arrested by Gainesville police for being drunk and disorderly. Patricia also had diminished mental capabilities. Her IQ was reportedly around 40, and she'd bounced around a few local assisted living facilities. It made her the perfect victim, highly vulnerable in more ways than one. Already inebriated, Little plied her with more and more drinks until she agreed to leave with him. Irene Montz saw the pair walk back to Little's car at the end of the night. Patricia was unsteady and had to lean on Little for support. He helped her into the passenger seat and then hurried around to his side of the car. Then he sped off into the night. Coming up, Little claims his first murder victim. Now back to the story. On September 11, 1982, 42-year-old Samuel Little went trolling for a date at a tavern in Gainesville, Florida. After striking out with several women, he connected with 26-year-old Patricia Ann Mount. By the time they left the bar together, she was so drunk she could hardly stand. Around midnight, 20 miles away in rural Forest Grove, something in the woods set off the local dogs. Mike Crane, a county sheriff's deputy who lived in the area, went out to call in his own canines. As he approached the fence line between his property and the woods, he spotted a light between the trees. Crane's wife, who came out to join him, could hear a man's voice yelling in the distance. A moment later, the light was gone. The dogs were silent. The Cranes went back to bed. At sunrise, the couple were roused by someone pounding on the door. Two local farmhands had been baling hay in a nearby field when they came across a woman's body. She was nude, covered in bruises, and had deep scratches around her neck. Crane called the police. 
When they arrived, they took the woman's fingerprints and quickly found a match. It was Patricia Mount. Police records indicated she was arrested only two nights before for drunk and disorderly conduct. Now she was dead. By the time police started looking for Patricia's killer, Little had already fled the state. He drove along the Gulf Coast through Alabama and up into Mississippi. Before long, he felt the urge to find another woman, another Patricia. Lust killers, like Little, are particularly prone to become repeat offenders, as their proclivities are almost entirely based in fantasy. As we mentioned earlier, his murders might have been a form of role-playing, his victims serving as surrogates for his mother, who he wanted to take revenge against. But according to criminal psychologist Eric Hickey, fantasies can never be completely fulfilled or satiated. Therefore, the act of killing spawns new fantasies of violence, enacting a vicious cycle. Soon enough, Little needed to kill again. A few weeks after he murdered Patricia, Little met 22-year-old Mindy LaPree in Mississippi. She'd had a hard path in life. Her mother died when she was seven, leaving her in the care of an abusive father. She eventually ran away, ending up in Pascagoula. According to her brother, teenage Mindy was introduced to drugs, mostly marijuana and cocaine. She also turned to sex work. Samuel Little found Mindy outside of a laundromat in Pascagoula. She was standing with a group of young women, most of them sex workers. When Little pulled up in his car, he initially asked another woman in the group for a date, named Catherine Cousins. She declined. She'd recently been beaten by a man who asked her out in a similar manner. She wasn't interested in meeting strangers anymore. Little was intrigued. Surely the man had a reason for beating her. Had she taken anything from him? Motioning to Mindy and a few of the other women nearby, he speculated that they looked like the type to steal. Little then reportedly told Cousins he would kill some of the women in the group if he got the chance. And if she told anyone, he growled, he would kill her too. Cousins could tell Little was not mentally well, but she couldn't discern whether his threat was real or not. What she could tell, however, was that Little enjoyed seeing the fear in her eyes. For lust killers like Little, instilling fear is a mechanism of control, an important factor in acting out their fantasies. According to Dr. Gary Brucato from the New York State Psychiatric Center at Columbia University, having complete power and control over his victims was very important to Little. Little later told journalist Jillian Lauren that he felt an overpowering need to own women. When she inquired why, he explained that he relished in their helplessness. He said, all I ever wanted was for them to cry in my arms. When Lauren pointed out that many of his victims had indeed cried before he killed them, and he murdered them anyway, he replied, well, you got me there. Maybe it wasn't all I wanted. When Catherine Cousins made it clear she wasn't leaving with him, Little shifted his attention to Mindy LaPree. While he successfully propositioned Mindy, Cousins didn't get the chance to warn her not to get in the car with the strange man. Mindy followed Little back to his car. 
Cousins knew Mindy was in trouble. She sprinted to the motel next door where Mindy was staying with her boyfriend and infant. She told the boyfriend what happened, and he immediately ran to the neighboring parking lot. By the time he got there, Little's car and Mindy LaPree were nowhere to be found. Days went by, and Mindy's boyfriend heard nothing from her. He eventually went to the police to report her missing. They didn't take the disappearance seriously at first. Mindy was a sex worker and dismissed the incident as a product of her high-risk lifestyle. This mindset makes sex workers much more vulnerable to violent crime. They can even be arrested when they report violence against themselves. According to the World Health Organization, the antagonistic relationship with police creates a climate of impunity for crimes against sex workers that may lead them to be the targets of violence or of other crimes that may turn violent, such as theft. Little knew a lot about sex workers. He likely knew how precarious their relationship with law enforcement could be. And perhaps this was another factor in his victim profile. He preyed on some of society's most vulnerable, the socioeconomically marginalized, like sex workers, and the mentally incapacitated, like Patricia Mount. He thought no one would miss them. On October 4th, 1982, a man mowing the lawn of a family cemetery in nearby Gaucher, Mississippi, came across Mindy LaPree's naked body in a water-filled ditch. It had been roughly two weeks since she'd gone missing, and her body was already badly decomposed. Now behind the eight ball, Pascagoula police scrambled for leads in what was now a murder investigation. They interviewed Catherine Cousins and a few other sex workers who'd been present at the laundromat the day Mindy LaPree disappeared. Cousins told them all about Samuel Little and their strange conversation that night. Police had also heard about other sex workers that Little had previously attacked in the area. Hilda Nelson and Leela McLean told police Little had assaulted and attempted to strangle both of them upon earlier visits to Pascagoula. Nelson met Little outside of a nightclub a few years before, in July of 1980. The pair went back to her apartment to have sex. Nelson told police that as soon as the door closed behind them, Little started choking her. Then he knocked her out with a punch. When she came to, she was in her own bed, Little on top of her, still choking and beating her. She passed out once more. When she came to again, she was submerged in water in her bathtub, nude, except for a scarf around her neck. She said that Little repeatedly yanked her head out of the water with the scarf, punched her in the face, and then shoved her back underwater. Eventually, for unknown reasons, Little left Nelson in her apartment. Perhaps he thought he had killed her. Nelson was discovered unconscious by her parents, who were unaware of her double life as a sex worker. Leela McLean told the police a similar story. In November of 1981, she was walking alone down a street in Pascagoula when Little pulled up alongside her in a wood-paneled station wagon. He asked her for a date in exchange for $50. As soon as McLean got in Little's car, he cold-cocked her in the back of the head. He started choking her, but she resisted, scratching and biting him. She tried to escape, 
kicking open the car door. But Little was faster. He dragged her kicking and screaming back to the vehicle. When a passing bicyclist spotted them, Little explained away her distress as drunkenness. In a surge of adrenaline, McLean hurled herself over the passenger seat into the rear of the vehicle and escaped through the back door. Wearing nothing but shorts and flip-flops, she sprinted along Highway 90 in the dead of night. She didn't stop running until she reached her apartment complex, where neighbors took her to the hospital. With the compelling stories of McLean and Nelson in hand, police in Pascagoula moved to arrest Little. But given his nomadic lifestyle, they had a hard time finding him. Luckily, Little was still a career criminal. He was picked up for shoplifting in Pascagoula. Once he was in custody, the prosecutor moved forward with murder and assault charges. But when he faced a grand jury, they didn't feel the state had sufficient evidence. They decided not to pursue a case. It seemed the grand jury wasn't moved by the testimony of two sex workers. Leela McLean later said, they don't care about black prostitutes in Pascagoula. Even though he escaped these charges, Little wasn't free to go. By this point, the police in Florida had built a case against him for Patricia Mount's murder. The owner of Willie May Hodge's Beer Tavern in Gainesville identified Little from the bar. He was the last person Patricia was seen alive with. There was a national warrant out for his arrest. The Pascagoula police shipped Little off to Gainesville to face justice. And the Florida officers had more than just witness testimony. They had DNA evidence. Gainesville investigators had recovered several hairs from Mount's body. They compared them to samples from Little. Unfortunately, DNA profiling, the process of determining a person's genetic characteristics from pieces of organic matter, was an extremely new field in the early 80s. It wasn't successfully used to convict anyone in court until 1989. So when Little went to trial for the murder of Patricia Mount in 1984, prosecutors could only present a qualitative analysis of the hair. All they could really say was that visually and texturally, it looked like the hair found on Patricia's body belonged to Little, but they couldn't provide the same accuracy we expect from DNA evidence today. When the defense cross-examined the DNA witness, the expert admitted that it was also possible for hairs to be transferred if two people bumped together. Ultimately, the jury acquitted Samuel Little of Patricia Mount's murder. Once again, he was released. And soon after, he killed again. Next, Samuel Little flees the American South for the West Coast, where he begins killing with even greater ferocity. Now back to the story. In January of 1984, 44-year-old Samuel Little was acquitted of murder charges in Florida. It was the second time he'd wriggled out of the justice system in the last year for his crimes against sex workers. Emboldened by his good fortune, Little headed for the opposite coast, arriving in San Diego, California by October. He had no intention of slowing his murder streak. He simply needed new territory, a blank slate, away from the Southern investigators who had caught his scent. One evening, Little met his next victim, Lori Barros. She was walking alone on a deserted street in downtown San Diego. 
he accosted her and forced her into his car. Little drove Barros to an isolated area and pushed her into the back seat. He ordered her to remove her pantyhose, bound her hands with them, and then choked her. She blacked out twice during the attack. When he thought Barros was dead, he pitched her body out the side of the car. An investigator would later testify he threw her out like garbage. Barros reported the attack to police, but because Little had no profile in the area, they had no immediate suspects. But in October, they would catch Little in the act. They came upon his new car, a Thunderbird, parked in a deserted area of town. Inside, they found him beating and strangling a local sex worker named Tanya Jackson. They arrested him on the spot and charged him with rape and assault with great bodily injury. Once again, Little went to trial. And again, the jury was unconvinced by the evidence. They deadlocked, unable to produce a verdict. To prevent a mistrial, the prosecutor offered Little a deal for a reduced sentence. He pleaded guilty to two counts of assault and one of false imprisonment and was sentenced to four years. However, Little only served a year and a half of that time before he was paroled in February of 1987. Upon his release, Little fled 125 miles north to Los Angeles. His time behind bars had only intensified his bloodlust. By July, five months after his release, Little found his next victim, 41-year-old Carol Alford. He strangled her in a residential alleyway near her apartment complex in LA's South Central neighborhood. She had been beaten savagely as well. It's unclear how many lives Little took over the next few years, but two were definitively confirmed. He stalked and killed 35-year-old Audrey Nelson in another South LA alleyway. He left her bruised and lifeless form, discarded in a dumpster. Around this time, he also beat and strangled 46-year-old Guadalupe Apodaca. Her body was left in an abandoned commercial garage in a deserted area of South Los Angeles. A nine-year-old boy was kicking a soccer ball against the side of the building when he peeked into one of its windows and saw a naked pair of women's legs sticking out into a doorway. He immediately raised the alarm. Little, now in his 40s, was killing at a faster rate with smaller refractory periods in between. It was an unusual age for a serial killer to begin accelerating in ferocity. Christopher Ugin, a professor of sociology and law, postulates that most serial killers reach peak violence around 16 to 18 years old, with a steady decline toward their mid-30s. Ugin believes age is the chief impediment to a killer as they become less capable of physically overpowering victims. Little, however, was a prized boxer, and even in his later 40s, still in fit condition. Likewise, Ugin speculates that many killers slow down toward middle age due to growing responsibilities at work and home. But Little, lacking a steady job or family, was never tied down. He had no reason to stop or decrease his bloodlust. But with every body Little left behind in Los Angeles, the police were able to collect and analyze more invaluable evidence that would eventually lead to his apprehension. 
As DNA profiling started to find its way into criminal courtrooms across the United States, Samuel Little was leaving bits and pieces of himself behind at every crime scene. He left DNA fingerprints when he ejaculated on the shirt left on Guadalupe Apodaca's body. When Audrey Nelson fought for her life, she gouged skin cells under her nails. It was just a matter of time before they compared their attacker's DNA profile to the national database. With police in Southern California closing in, Little fled to Texas, a fresh hunting ground. He landed in Odessa in the far western reaches of the state. The hot and dusty oil town was home to 38-year-old Denise Brothers. Like many of Little's other victims, Denise was a single mother, down on her luck. Her two boys lived with her own parents. She herself was too addicted to heroin to adequately care for either. Denise had married young, at 15, to a violent man. When she was finally able to extricate herself from that relationship, she quickly fell into the arms of another man who would eventually introduce her to heroin and sex work. The night she died, Denise was traversing a barren stretch of Odessa Industrial Park between the motel where she lived and the motel where her pimp resided. From what Little eventually told journalist Jillian Lauren, Denise only made it half a block before he approached her. In his signature style, he pulled up alongside her in the car he was driving in those days, a white Cadillac. Denise invited herself into his vehicle, and the pair immediately went off to buy drugs. Little claimed he bought her a large amount of crack cocaine and black tar heroin. Then they returned to the motel where Denise's pimp resided and proceeded to share the drugs with him. Little claims the pimp then left Denise alone with him to pay the bill by trading sex. But first, Little offered to draw Denise. He said to Lauren, I told her I could draw her so pretty, like Van Gogh. Little claimed to have an eidetic or photographic memory, an ability to remember visual information in great detail. It's likely that even his early portraits were based on real women he had encountered. His later drawings certainly were. Drawing real women presented a troubling contradiction, as highlighted by journalist Jillian Lauren. How could Little have invested the kind of deep intention needed to draw women and yet also find them completely disposable? Clinical psychologist and researcher Gary Brucato found that serial killers are intensely visual people and that it's not uncommon for them to produce some kind of artistic or creative product related to their crimes. He claimed the act may be a way of reliving or prolonging the fantasy that inspired the kill. He said they're living out that fantasy over and over again, trying to make it more and more perfect in their mind. Denise politely declined to sit for a portrait. Instead, they returned to Little's vehicle. He pulled the car into a deserted alleyway and demanded oral sex. As she prepared to do the act, Little grabbed Denise by the throat and tossed her into the back seat. He threw his own body on top of hers, rendering her helpless and immobile. Then he wrapped a hand around her neck. While Denise struggled against his grip, Little masturbated with his free hand. Soon, Denise was dead. 
and Little was once again satiated. But that sense of satisfaction was fleeting. Over the next decade and more, Little would continue to hunt down vulnerable women. And despite numerous run-ins with the law on charges of drug possession and theft and more, he would continue to slip through police's grasp. It wasn't until 2012, 18 years after the death of Denise Brothers, that a Los Angeles detective by the name of Mitzi Roberts would begin putting the pieces together, drawing her own portrait of America's most prolific serial killer. Thanks again for tuning in to Serial Killers. We'll be back Thursday with part two of Samuel Little. We'll retrace the steps of Detective Roberts as she uncovers the nationwide extent of Little's crimes. We'll also follow Texas Ranger James Holland as he inspires Little to recall some of his grisliest deeds. For more information on Samuel Little, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Serial Killer and the Less Dead by Jillian Lauren, published by The Cut in December of 2018, to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Serial Killers, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Serial Killers on Spotify, just open the app and type Serial Killers in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Have a killer week. Serial Killers was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Serial Killers was written by Jake Flanagan, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 